So first of all, thank you for the questions that you've given us. Just uh, with questions, I actually usually don't call it Q&A because uh, it's not necessarily that we'll manage to answer your question or what you wanted us to answer in your question, but uh, I, I tend to think more in terms of questions and responses, and hopefully re the responses will be useful, but if they're not, just uh, see what that's like. Um, <laughs> it's interesting to me that a lot of the Buddha's teaching was rather than sort of giving a discourse just spontaneously what was in response to, to questions and to people coming and engaging with them so we've got a number of questions here a few of the questions clearly refer to the kind of things we want to focus on tomorrow in terms of our transition and going out into the world and continuing practice in that context. And so those questions will hold for tomorrow, if that's okay with you. And I guess even if it's not. Um, and we'll just see how we go with them. But maybe it might be nice just to begin to see, does, is there anyone who has a question they wanted to, at this point, ask live rather than having written it down? Because... Or might have. Okay, so, 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 okay. So there's a few hands. So let's, I think let's start with the, the live questions then. Um, and uh, of those, were they maybes or were they questions? Okay, great. Yeah, so, well, it sounds like one beginning then, please. So if you speak loudly... Do you want to? I, I, I'm I'm happy to answer, but I just want to check if either of you guys. Um, I mean, we can all have an opinion about. Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I look into the room and I see it. Yeah, it's this. Yeah. That's certainly one um, version of that. How and where it will go? Um, who knows? Certainly, it's likely to look different in a hundred years, but probably not that different in ten. Are you asking that as a, do I have a, or do we see that as what's already happening or what we see happening in the future? Because yes, yes, yes. it's definitely growing between now and 10 years ago, or now and 20 years ago, or now and 30 years ago. Massive growth, incredible growth. It will grow, and at some point it will go in the other direction because all things go up and down. And the Buddha, the Buddha spoke in terms of that, that his, he, he said, he predicted, who knows if he's right, that his teachings would last for 5,000 years. And for about two and a half thousand years, they'd be on the way up. Now, I guess for two and a half thousand years, they'd be on the way down before they disappeared. And uh, we're actually about 2,600 years at this point, so we're maybe just on the crest of the wave. Who knows? But for myself, I don't really think in those terms so much. I don't know what you guys have to... No, it's fine. Yeah. Also, people who asked questions there could ask them live if they could. Well, what... We're discussing amongst ourselves online um, or live here. How to do this? To yeah, yeah. If when we ask the question, 
and it's your question and you want to refer back to what you actually wanted us to answer or clarify, feel free to let us know that as we're doing it. If you'd rather pretend it wasn't your question or not let anyone know, um, that's fine too. You know, so it's really just, it's, it's, there's some space for interactivity. Can you speak as if I was sitting a lot further away from you? Because some of the people are. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I understand that the the Buddha had said that all conditioned things are impermanent. And I was reflecting on that in in terms of your talk. Um, And what I had wanted to ask, and I hadn't actually formulated it well, but my question is, uh, if we can't go and seek refuge in the conditioned, and we seek refuge in the unconditioned, um, can you say precisely what that is? (laughs) (laughs) Did everyone hear the question? Okay, so the question was picking up on the, the Buddha's teaching, all conditioned things... Or, sorry, are impermanent, yeah, that particular piece of it. And therefore there's no refuge to be found in them. Refuge is to be found in the unconditioned. This is what the Buddha said. If there was no, if there was not that which was unconditioned, there would be no refuge from the conditioned. That's another way he, he framed it. So could we say a little bit more or be more precise about the unconditioned? So again... I'm happy to respond. Do either of you want to respond to that before we have a? Yes. The Buddha mostly spoke about what it was not. The Buddha spoke about freedom in terms of a realization and an understanding of the nature of life, which he sought to point to by distinguishing it from the things it was not. And what that means is, in terms of trying to put positive language on what's being pointed at, it inevitably distorts or creates a distorted perception if we try and go to it from the point of view of language. Experientially, in terms of direct knowing, it can be known. In terms of speaking it, I mean, Lao Tzu said, the Tao that can be spoken is not the real Tao. Um, The Buddha, in a way, said it is the not born, the not dying, the not arising, the not passing, the not standing still. Um, So one could say a lot about it without having got any closer in those terms. Mm-hmm. I just, just want to add a little bit. It's also interesting, like in the question, what I refer, and I might be wrong, so tell me, please. So it says, can you say a little bit about the unconditioned, like make it something so that I can somehow rest on it? You know, At make least it, I can see it. Yes, oh, you can see it, exactly. It. And this is how, where our mind goes. And this is where our mind goes. We want to have then another thing where we can rest and, 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 and yeah, imagine it. 
But this is where the Buddha really doesn't give the answer. He really, as Yana said, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, and it's not this. So he keeps excluding what it is. But he never says it's that. And maybe this in itself points to something. Um, yeah, religions tend to go to one extreme or the other, either making the absolute truth the something or then saying it's a nothing. I mean, and again, you can probably see, you probably get different things from all of us that respond. And I think this this conditionality that he pointed to, it's like it forces us to keep really current in not landing in that perspective which can reify or deny. It's like, where do you abide then? And I'm, there's no, I'm not putting that as you need to find an answer, but it's like that kind of uh, uh, extraordinary um, not having to abide. the end <laughs> so that may or may not satisfy I think that one of the key elements in the question is that there's a, a way in which we're looking and that we can recognize this looking for somewhere that's going to be a comfortable place for ourselves. and in fact what we're speaking to here what the teachings are pointing to is in some ways profoundly uncomfortable from the point of view of self because it doesn't fulfill that urge for something to hold on to. That's a kind of hard thing to sell in the modern Western culture. So what I would suggest with it is to let that sense of interest stay keen. The, the way to handle that interest, I find, what's useful is rather than try and take it out into finding an answer, it's like let yourself be interested, what could this be that isn't something or nothing? as Catherine was saying. What, to be really curious, because therein is the, the gateway. Yeah, that's probably... Thank you. Thank you. Good question. Yeah, so at the back, Becky? Um, I've got two questions. One of them I think might have been that, but I didn't exactly understand the answer. So my question was something along the lines of if, um, you know, if everything is impermanent, Is, is one of my questions. Do you want number two now? 
Let's start with one, and we'll come to the second. <laughs> Again. Just also we have to keep a little bit with the time with the other Yeah, questions. but I think yeah. these are good. Mm. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we need um, skillful, stable refuges in the world of things, actually. Um, but that's different than being attached to them. And the teachings are called, you may know the metaphor of the raft. It's like the raft to take us to the other shore. It's like, yes. The refuge is also, um, it's like, we're going to put our refuge in things. Our mind will do that anyway. It's like a natural tendency to want to abide. Um, So find refuges that are skillful. And um, there's a lovely sutta called The One Fortunate Attachment in the middle-length sayings, and the Buddha speaking about that um, orientation to want to know freedom. And keeping this in mind, just also to know, and I think you already alluded to it, that actually, ultimately, there is nothing stable you know, in this world of conditions. There is nothing where we can actually ultimately, you know, in terms of this conditioned phenomena, rest. But again, working with different perspectives and with different views which are helpful at times, at what um, Catherine was referring to. And knowing also whatever we experience will, will pass. It's nothing is exempt from it. And holding this, again, this tension between the two, yes, skillful taking refuge, skillful attachments, and yet knowing that whatever is conditioned is impermanent. Yeah. <laughs> Again, just the questions and this question, it's really important questions. In a way, we're trying to address that kind of question through the whole of what we're doing here. How do we find in, in, in that the, the ground within the fluidity? And some of it is actually a lot to do with finding a place of refuge in that conditionality itself in the correct understanding of it and orientation to it. Wisdom is, in fact, the refuge in the face of constantly changing things in that way, understanding how to handle them. And second question? The second question was, um, how important do you think it is, or each of you think it is, um, to have a teacher, um, I guess, heard you speaking about your your particular teachers and um, you know I, I wonder how to you know how important that is and, and how you go about finding that person so I'll give you my response first um, teachings are essential for us in terms of deepening in terms of awakening having access to the wisdom of humanity, essentially, which comes in many forms, 
and making ourselves open to it and making finding ways to have contact with it is essential. And the Buddha spoke of this as one of the primary supports for awakening. Having a teacher or a specific my teacher, I'm not so sure if that's the case. Um, I've had a number of teachers over the years who occasionally I thought maybe this is my teacher or these are my teachers. But if I look back, that was usually for periods of time and then things changed. I know other people who've had a teacher who's been the teacher from you know for their whole practice life. I think it can go in different ways, but what is essential is teachings. And in terms of finding teacher or teachings, see what you connect with, what resonates for you. Uh, one of the things that defined the Buddha for what he was, as he's known then and in the tradition, was the capacity to teach all beings exactly as they needed to be taught. That was what he developed through, in the tradition, many hundreds and thousands of years of practice that distinguished him from just your, quote, average enlightened guy. Yeah? Of which there were a few around at the time, apparently. And for me, what that says is that each person actually needs to be taught according to where they are. And so if it's a teaching or a teacher that works, great. But don't assume that makes it the most right or the best. It's just, this is what works. Actually, not not much to add. Just really see if 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 a relationship, if a personal relationship with a teacher at this point might be helpful, you know. And then listen to this rather than having. Oh, now I need a teacher. In some re- traditions, you will get this answer. It's very very. It's this is like yes, you need a teacher. And again, f- very, very similar to what Jana said, I had at times different teachers, but I never actually had like a strong one-to-one relationship. Not denying that this might be really extremely helpful and beneficial, because then one has a person and we can one can work very specifically, you know, on one's own development and one's own path. But really see what what feels right for you. Actually, I want to add another piece. I also realize just in terms of how it works for people, in the West, for often it's not that there's necessarily a sort of a teacher in every village, so to speak. Um, it might be that one has to travel or make some considerable effort to have contact with teaching and practice, although the Internet is starting to change that, in fact. There's a lot more available online. But often how it happens is that one actually takes oneself to where one can find the teaching that one connects with and it often requires effort and sacrifice. I mean, although it wasn't necessarily the only reason at all that I stayed in this country, but I'm living on the other side of the planet than where I started um, because of the wish to practice with certain teachers and the dharma that I found here. And the other thing is with the teacher, if you're interested in having more contact with them, ask them what's possible. It will depend on their circumstance and that, but... um, you have to ask and see what comes. Hmm? No. Okay. There's, there's, lots to, there's lots to say about all this, so rich. And there's a lot of questions, so it would be uh, nice to touch on them more.
So, do you want to take one? Yeah, there is one question. Is there an essential difference between loving kindness and compassion? And again, I, I try to make a, a short but hopefully satisfying response to this. So normally loving kindness is described as a wish, as a recognition, like a connection with a recognition that as I wish to be happy, everyone else, all sentient beings, wish to be happy. So there is a there is a um a connection with the with the with the um in the communality that we all want to be happy. So loving kindness has this quality of well wishing, of friendliness, you know, of wishing the others that they will, you know, experience happiness and ourselves. Compassion has a slightly different angle to this. So compassion is a response of heart and mind to the presence of suffering. So where loving kindness wishes happiness, well-being, compassion wishes or sees the communality that we all want to be free from suffering. And it's this heart response to the presence of suffering. And I wouldn't get too um, tied up into the difference because sometimes when we practice, the borders can blur a little bit. So it's not that we have to be like, oh, this is loving kindness, this is compassion. They blur a little bit, they can blur a little bit, and this is fine. Sometimes it can be actually interest, interesting to really be clear. This is loving kindness, wishing well, this is compassion wishing the other to be free from suffering. I think that's it for unless you mm. <laughs> <laughs> also one can maybe also see that with it classically compassion is understood as a subset of loving kindness in, in Theravadan teaching, the sort of teaching of the, the southern schools from which insight meditation comes at it it's like a subset within that well wishing it's well wishing for someone suffering um and that so in that way they're they're not separate but they're often practiced in some forms very differently and that's why um it sometimes feels that way Um, <clears throat> could you please repeat the formulation when the unobstructed heart encounters different things and what flowers or not does a deluded monk have outside his hut <laughs> <laughs> first part um, there's so in response to suffering the, the unobstructed heart arises in compassion in response to the communality of us, there's the metta, the kindness. In response to good fortune, there is joy. It's like I delight in your good fortune. And that is all on looked, looked on with equanimity. That which is not um, 
in a way actually has transcended in that moment pleasure or pain being the um, important factor. There's another formulation that might be helpful from the Vasudhimaga, which is that the different types of personalities transform, the particular qualities transform into particular things. And that's why I think some, the person wrote something about equanimity and confusion. Um, and there it's said, and I'll just give the formulation, that the aversive tendency, when it's purified, transforms into clarity, intelligence. And you can kind of see that, can't you? Because it has a kind of sharpness to it, but it's usually a bit jabby when it's aversion. Um, greed translates into faith. It's like that kind of... You can kind of see that connection too. And they say that confusion... Not, the not landing transforms into equanimity, which is being equally close to all things, which is beautiful. The end. Where are my notions of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral coming from, and are they fixed? So we've spoken about the experience of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral as being an element of every moment's experience that the Buddha encouraged us to pay attention to because it is the primary element that conditions the reactivity in the unconscious mind in the directions of greed, of hatred, or delusion, as we've talked about. Where do they come from? Well, they're described as being a mental factor. So it's one of the factors that we experience in the mind, although, in fact, we most often feel them directly in the body. Um, Are they fixed? Absolutely not. They're absolutely not fixed. You can hear one sound, and exactly the same sound can have two very different feeling qualities. I already mentioned, I think, earlier that the sound of the bell rung at lunchtime is exactly the same sound as the sound of the bell rung at 6.15 a.m. in the morning, and the sound isn't always felt to be quite as pleasant (laughs) at that moment. So that's to do with our association with the sound often. And maybe then, in that way, it could be fixed. But where is it coming from? It's a bit like, where is anything coming from? It's happening. And it arises out of conditions. All things arise out of conditions. And we become conditioned to a certain sound being pleasant or unpleasant, according to what we associate it with. I don't know if that's a useful answer. And, uh, yeah, does anyone want to say any more on that? Uh, Just maybe a short reflection. You know, absolutely understandable, understandable, this this answer. Where is it coming from? But then it can be also quite helpful to reflect again, you know, in in, in the Buddha, apparently, he was very keen on it. What are helpful questions and what are less helpful questions? And I don't want to at all dismiss the question. It's a great question. But the question, I would assume, which is more helpful here, it's a, you know, everything, everything, the experience will arise with one of these feeling tones. 
it's not in the thing, but it will arise. You know, there is a response of neutral, unpleasant or pleasant. So I think a more helpful question is, yes, it arises with every experience. How can I relate to it in a way that I'm not trapped in the reaction to the feeling tones? You know, how can I relate to them that I can actually see them clearly, can see what they actually, um, where they can actually compel me to, and find my freedom with it? So again, you know, this is the question, you know, I don't know if I can really answer it to any extent because it's probably, um, but, you know, I can share with you what I know about it. I'm interested in Omani Partner Hung. Could you tell us a little bit more, please? I can tell you a little bit more. Um, so this is one of the mantras which is, which is very much used in the Tibetan tradition and it's, 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 a, compa- it's a compassionate mantra. So when one sees Tibetan practitioners, you know, when you're traveling for, into India, for example, you know, they go with their, their praying wheels and that is om mani padna hum, And it translates, as far as I know, it's like I pay homage to the, to the jewel in the lotus. So pat is, is actually lotus and padme is in the lotus. And what I understand about it is actually the realization that we all have um, Buddha nature in us. That we all an expression, or that we all, uh, not an expression, that's the right word, but that we all have Buddha nature. Realized or not, that we all have the potential to awaken and this is what it's pay, being paid homage to. I pay homage to the jewel in the lotus. So this is my understanding, and I'm aware that there might be different, maybe slightly different um, um, interpretations of this, but this is my, my understanding about it. It's a connecting with our potential and knowing that we all have this, that we all share this. <laughs> The Buddha speaks about the mind well cultivated is malleable. And in its malleability, then that's where you get these four Brahma Viharas the metta, the compassion, the joy, and the equanimity. They're the faces of this jewel. You can think of a diamond in a way, or an emerald or something. Different lights can shine through the jewel, and it's, it faces differently towards different things in the world that's animated, in the world of form. And that dual potential of awakening is out of our compassion, comes from our compassion to see suffering and instinctively know and be drawn to what is not that. So there's that link between suffering, compassion and awakening, very briefly outlined. Okay, I have just one more. Um, I, I mentioned something thing it says a couple of times you mentioned three elements needed for insight i don't know what particular formulation the person is asking about but it looks like from their little diagram it was what i said the other night in the talk sila samadhi and panya 
foundation of ethics, sila. <coughs> Built on that is the samadhi, which is another one of the questions, that gatheredness of mind, which gives the platform for the wisdom. So, can you clarify what is samadhi? Um, that is very much the territory of, of meditation practice in terms of what the tools and techniques are often oriented towards is this gathering and collecting of the, of the consciousness, of the citta, which we've talked about. And it's, there, there's both very classical and specific developments that one can, in a way, train one's mind with to certain and very particular kinds of collectedness collectedness and gatheredness in which the um, the consciousness essentially becomes absorbed into particular qualities of uh, experience in a, in a very unifying, very powerful way. And this is often what's talked about as uh, having samadhi or developing samadhi. And we might sometimes touch into or notice those kind of experiences even when we're not engaged in the systematic development of those practices when there's a sense of a stillness and a fullness. And some of you have referred to the sense of a sort of a, a substantial quality that seems to pervade the not just the body and mind but just it's almost like the immediacy of the space we're in that we can rest in. And so one of the characteristics of that is that we no longer have to work so hard to stay present because the mind is actually, it's like it's engaged fully in the experience that's happening. And so in terms of the, the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path, the development of samadhi is one of those elements, the capacity to train, to collect, to gather the mind. And in that sense, it's, often distinguished or seen separate from the development of wisdom, of insight, which is the, the third limb that Catherine spoke about there. And that's a way we can talk about it to see, yeah, there's a development of calm, focus, stability. And it's a bit like with a light beam. If you have a, a light source and you don't have a lens behind it, you, you get a very diffuse light. And if you're waving your hand around, you can't really see much with a little light bulb that doesn't have a lens on it. So the first thing of samadhi, of steadying the mind, is stabilize the light source. That's how actually consciousness is a light source, we could say here. And so that just bringing it into some degree of stability, we can see more clearly. Things are less shaky. That's a lot of what can happen in practice. And then we can actually tune that light source as it were as if we were putting a lens behind it or in front of it depending what kind of if it's a reflective lens it's behind it like in a torch and it gathers the light into a single beam hmm? if that's done with sufficient degree of samadhi or concentration in those terms light can turn into laser and a laser can penetrate solid material and that happens in terms of physics we know how that can work in terms of the consciousness, it's similar. It develops a, as it focuses, we can see more clearly with it. And ultimately, in its more refined focus, it penetrates through the appearance of things to reveal the nature underlying that. And so it seems very different that what is revealed is insight, what is penetrating or giving that power to it is the samatha, the gathered, collected, focused potency of, of the citta, of consciousness. But the Buddha spoke of this practice as samatha vipassana, 
which is samatha, it's another version of the word. It's like gatheredness and insight together. And so in the way we've been teaching it and practicing it, although initially in the beginning part more emphasis on the samatha aspect, and towards the latter part of the, the retreat more emphasis on the vipassana, the insight aspect, they are very much part of the same thing. And it's not necessary to ultimately try and separate them out. Although one can at times work on strength or agility or stamina or oxygen capacity in getting physically healthy and separate out different things for each one. But ultimately we're talking about physical well-being and, it's, and good health. And, and that's a unified thing. Similarly, samatha vipassana. It's actually a unified capacity. Um, yeah, just yeah, <laughs> just maybe um, draw out um, one one more thing, you know, just to to really um, um, echo what Jana said, you know, that it's to to not uh, separate it too much because what we can see also in our practice, yes, uh, a collected, calm, unified mind. Um, Supports. It's a very fertile soil for insight. It's a very fertile soil for insight. So even any understanding which actually is perceived by a calm, collected mind, it's like it's a little bit more fertile as, as than the scattered mind, the less unified mind. To really see, it's like cultivating the soil. But what we also begin to see that actually there is like this feedback loop between the two. It's like a dynamic between the two. So like samadhi gives rise to insight and the insight actually deepens the calm, the samadhi, the collectedness. So it's a really beautiful feedback loop between the two rather than we build up one and then we go to the other. It's actually really feeding each other, supporting each other. And we need to cultivate both. And sometimes, again, we have to focus more in one. You know, we have to go a little bit more here and then we have to go a little bit more to the other direction, wisdom and calming. Do you want me or do you have one? Some words of advice, please, for those who need courage and belief in, them, in themselves. I actually think Jana knows more of the, of the words. There's a very beautiful saying of the Buddha And it goes along the lines, if it wasn't possible, and if I would think that you can't do it, I wouldn't ask you to do it. And to really let you think in, if it wasn't possible and if I would think you couldn't do it, I I wouldn't ask you to do it. And to really maybe just open up to this possibility that we all have, that we all have no matter, no matter how stuck we feel, how pained we feel, 
how miserable we feel. We always have the potential, we always have the potential to understand, to awake. It's always there. No depth, no depth of doubt, self-doubt, lack of self-confidence does deny this. Can, it, cannot, it cannot be denied. And of course, you know, just hearing this, if we are in the midst of it, it's quite a, it's quite a leap of, of faith. But just to open up to this possibility, you know, and it is something which is reflected in, in, in what I spoke earlier today, uh, earlier about in, in this, in this uh, mantra, Omani Partner Home. It's not saying you have it, the jewel, and you don't have it. It's like we all have it, you know, we all have this, we all have this potential. And just that you don't have any excess, any inkling of it doesn't mean that it's not available for you. There's a couple of questions here that are kind of similar. And uh, in the first one, I think, Phil, you are inviting us to come back and rest in spaciousness around experience and experience slash object animation rather than the fantasy that we can find rest in the object or something fixed. And this is similar to what, um, what Becky asked to rest in the spaciousness as opposed to trying to find rest in the particular things that appear within the spaciousness. And another question, so actually to that question, yes. Um, right. And we'll say a bit more, uh, we'll endeavour to. The technique of looking at pure awareness as opposed to focusing on experience is wonderful. Where can we learn more, practice more? Is it the same as Zogchen? So... What we've spoken about more in the last uh, days of the retreat, as we've, there's been more settledness and stability, is the capacity to attune to the knowing, the, in a way the field of awareness, the space of presence and consciousness in which the experience is unfolding and in which it's being revealed. And this is, in a way, the natural development of the practice of vipassana. There are some other forms of meditation. Zogchen is one of them. Um, it's a Tibetan uh, tradition practice in which one is invited to very specific, in a very specific form and way, look at the particular qualities of, we could say, awareness and attune to them. Um, but it's not something we need to go to practice in some other form. Although some people, you know, may be interested, and you can certainly explore that. It's one of those things that, a little bit as we were saying before, when we say that the awareness, when we make it into something, and this is a little bit how it works within the Zogjin tradition, they talk about Rigpa as the nature of mind. Okay, Now we could equally say that the nature of mind is just this awareness that has a, a clarity and a, and a caring, a kindliness to it, that's sort of a, a quality of presence that's informed by both wisdom and 
by loving kindness. So we can make that into a something, and then we risk getting into the sort of making a something out of something that's not a something and getting attached to that. And at the other hand, on the other hand, in some traditions within the, the Theravada, they, uh, there's a tendency to say, well, no, there's no such thing as awareness. It doesn't exist. Show me it. Come on. Give me one. What's awareness? And of course, what can you do? There isn't any such thing. So finding this balance between the recognition of something that we can know, we can see in a certain way, and yet we can't fix or grasp. And we can put language on it, like awareness or presence or whatever else. The language will not hold it. But what is it that happens for you? When you notice this tuning into that, and the, the word in the, this is, it's wonderful to notice what is it that happens when we see that dimensionality or that aspect of the experience of what's happening. Because it's actually not an experience, it's that in which the experience is revealed. The Buddha said, and uh, picking up from earlier, all conditioned things are impermanent. He went on to say, all conditioned things are unsatisfactory, unable to give lasting satisfaction. Sabe sata anicca. No, sabe, sabe sankara anicca. All conditioned things are impermanent. Sabe sankara dukkha. All conditioned things are incapable of giving lasting satisfaction. And then he said, sabe dharma. Anatta. And saying in this, all dharmas, all things are without inherent separate graspability. It's a very significant teaching because he clearly distinguishes, well, he, in the language, between conditioned things and using the word dharma to, it would be no sense to use it unless there was a larger framework being referred to than just conditioned things. If we could just say all conditioned things are this, all conditioned things are this, all conditioned things are this as well, that would be a lot tidier. But it wouldn't actually include this dimensionality of truth. So there's something being pointed at in the realm of dharmas that is not of the realm of conditioned things. And that is the territory that the practice is pointing us to understanding together with understanding the nature of conditioned things, because we live in a world full of them. And in fact, we are one of them, as far as we are what we call ourselves. So we need to understand this. So where can we learn more about that? Right here. And I don't mean just the guy house. I mean right here, because this is the only place we will ever encounter it. Everywhere else, if we think it's anywhere else or somewhere else... uh, We won't find it there. But be interested. Be interested. Sure. Can I ask a question? Sure. Um, Well, let's just see if we're done with that one. Yeah, Yeah. go ahead, Sophia. Yeah. Um, Firstly, is there a particular school of Buddhism that 
um, or is it a kind of collection of fusion of different things? Secondly, um, what do you think about um, Nichiren Taishonin Buddhism and its massive rights? And then and it's mm-hmm. one of the fastest rising forms of Buddhism in the West. And what do you have any thoughts on that? I, I don't because I know very little about Nichiren Buddhism. Why don't you do the first one? Yeah. Okay. So Gaia House is aligned with what we call the uh, insight medi- the lay ins- the lay Western insight meditation tradition. Okay. Uh, so it's a description rather than a name. It's something that really, in the last thirty or forty years, has emerged in the West as a expression <coughs> of the teachings that originated primarily in, or that were maintained primarily in the, the Southeast Asian and Indian region, Indian subcontinent, um, called Theravada. And insight meditation is, is primarily based on the earliest recognized um, teachings of the Buddha that were recorded. Uh, there are other traditions that are seen as, in a way, developments from that, although including that. Not everyone would necessarily agree on any attempt to define all of this because in a certain way it's a early in an early stage of development. Interestingly, the Zen tradition, which we think of as something, it similarly is actually named after a practice. Zen actually comes from the same word that originates from the word that means samadhi um, through a number of different steps. And so most of us, certainly myself and many of the teachers here, will talk about insight meditation as the short version the longer version is because in the West, A, it's mostly lay people, though not exclusively, and it's mostly oriented towards kind of the practices and the tools rather than the, the philosophy or the sort of the religious cultural sort of forms as being primary. Hmm? And that's kind of what distinguishes it from a lot of other traditions that have come more with the, the monastic or the, the priests, the monks, the nuns and that into the West where there's a much more strong sense of that Asian lineage carrying it. Although that's still in our tradition too. It's different. Um, (coughs) And I think in a way it's early days to see where it's going in terms of becoming a something. It's a sort of a loose (coughs) gathering, I would say, that's finding its, its focus and direction. And within that there are particular strands that one could identify. And I could, but I don't think it's useful to go into that now as to which is all the different pieces here. But some of the common features are a, um, a, a, a willingness to include some of the psychological wisdom of Western development in the last 150 years and integrating that into, into spiritual teaching and a, and a real emphasis on coming back to the transformative elements of the practice that in any religious tradition over time in any country, and it'll happen here with this for sure, it's easy for it to become something more of a cultural phenomena. And that has its place and its value, but the proportion of people who are practicing Buddhism in Asia who are really practicing what we're doing here is relatively small. In the same way that I imagine if you ask some um, Carmelite nuns about their practice and then which is a pretty committed, dedicated, retreat-based practice for the most part, I think, you know, they would see maybe what happens in the average parish church as also being sort of not necessarily the same thing, although connected. 
So most religions go through sort of resurgences or renaissances, regenerations. And so whenever the Buddha Dharma has gone to another region of the world, as it has on various occasions, there's been something of a regeneration and a reformulation of the teaching. And in 100, 200, maybe 500 years, we'll have a clearer idea of what it looks like. It'll have a name and all of that. <laughs> With regard to Nietzsche, and I don't know so much. Um, Catherine might, but... <laughs> yeah, take, take the mic. I, I don't know anything about it. But with most traditions, what's, if you're interested, is check it out and see. Mm-hmm. As much as the tradition is of interest, I think meet the people, see if you resonate, listen to the teachings, see if they're useful. And I think the Buddhist thing, when someone asked him, not about that particular denomination, but how can you see if a teaching is leads onward towards liberation? And he said, does it have... Ethics, samadhi, and wisdom. Okay. How much time do we want to give it? Well, we're, getting, we're close to done. Why don't we yeah. just finish? Mm-hmm. We'll see where we are. So when considering the suffering of others, I very often get stuck in guilt and feeling overwhelmed, as if I'm responsible can you suggest how best to work with this? Um, not just first really to acknowledge, you know, if we actually open up to, to the fact of, of suffering in this world, it, it can be quite overwhelming. You know, there is a lot around. You know, a lot, lot of inner suffering and a lot of, of, of injustice, poverty, violence. So just to really acknowledge that there is a lot, a lot of suffering around. And it can feel overwhelming. It can feel overwhelming. And then again, you know, what I hear quite often, we tend to go into then into the comparing mind. So there is like actually a heart response, you know, opening up to the suffering and there is a really heart response being touched by it. And then very, very easily, even if we are, um, okay, just go on with this thought, you know, we can come then and compare, you know, especially if we get in touch with our own suffering. You know, this comparing mind comes in and says, you know, who am I to say I'm suffering if I look around and see all this suffering? You know, you do not, you do not have to deny your own suffering. You don't have to, you don't have to diminish, belittle, dismiss, demean your own suffering to be able to be touched by the suffering that is around you. It doesn't take away to actually acknowledge your own suffering, your heart's capacity to be open to the suffering of others. So letting maybe a little bit go of this dichotomy we are making here. I should not feel my suffering. It's suffering. It's suffering. And it wants to be met by compassion. It needs to be met by compassion. With the, with the thing of guilt, again, you know, guilt is quite an interesting thing. You know, guilt is again, you know, like I'm guilty. It's like the, the, 
the, the, the being, you know, it's touched by suffering, it feels responsible, I'm guilty, and then we wrap ourselves around it. Actually, when we look into the quality of guilt, it is about us. It's about us, I feel guilty. Yeah, I shouldn't, you know, I should do this or I shouldn't have done that. And just see if you can let go of this contraction around, you know, this self-contraction, which actually is expressed in guilt. And, you know, open, soften, and maybe inclining one's heart and mind more to the feeling of remorse, which is a very different thing especially if in one way or the other we might actually have intentionally or unintentionally contributed to the suffering of another. Can I approach this? Yes, there is some responsibility here. I have to take this responsibility, something I did. I might not have meant it actually caused suffering in the other. Can I unwrap it from guilt about this? I am guilty, but actually feel genuine remorse. And this is actually, again, a more heart opening. It's a, it's a more yeah, opening movement. And something we actually spoke quite a lot about in, in the teaching, but haven't really um, introduced here so much as practice, what can be very, very helpful um, in, in a working with, with, with our response to suffering is actually equanimity practice. Now here we are, we respond to, 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 um, we respond to suffering and being aware, you know, how this suffering has arisen, um, probably now not, not pride enough in the mind to actually formulate this very good, because it can go very easily into a wrong direction. Can I pass this on to you? I just don't have, in the moment, I just feel I don't have the clarity of mind here. I'm feeling quite tired, so... Um, can I pass this sure. on to you about equanimity? Sure. I, I, I can, I can mm-hmm. um, confuse it as well as anyone, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> so in the, in the teaching, in terms of the, when we, we pointed to the recognizing of the first noble truth, there is suffering. And seeing that the fact that there is suffering is not because we've done it wrong. Our own suffering isn't because somehow we are bad or wrong. And likewise, the suffering of the world is not somehow our fault. It's in the nature of things that suffering arises. Now, what we can understand and what the teachings, in terms of, in terms of the way we live in the world, what is transformative is understanding that the root of our intentions is what leads to the ultimate qualitative outcomes, which means when we act from a place of a wholesome and skillful intention, it ultimately contributes and leads to happiness. And when we act from something that's unskillful, it leads to suffering. And primarily the unskillful intentions are intentions that come from a place of greed, of self-centered craving, of aversion, of hatred, of, of 
the disregard of the welfare of others or the pushing away of experience and from delusion, from a misunderstanding of the nature of experience. And the primary misunderstanding that we've pointed to is the idea that we are somehow separate from everything and everyone around us. When we act out of those three misperceptions, when we act from those three um, roots, this leads to suffering, the Buddha said. Acting from greed, acting from hatred, acting from delusion will lead to suffering. Just as if we plant the seed of a neem tree, it was the classic teaching, which is a very bitter plant, you will get a tree that grows a fruit and the fruit will be bitter. There's no way around it. Or as if one acts from a place of greed, or, sorry, from non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, is the way the Buddha puts it, then this will actually lead to happiness. So we practice to be able to see those intentions, to understand what they actually result in, and make a skillful choice. In terms of that, and how that relates to equanimity, it's understanding that the ultimate outcome of our experience, and not just our experience, but the outcome of everybody's experience, is determined by the quality of the intentions that inform their actions, not by what we wish for ourselves or others. So I might wish someone else to be happy, but if they keep... If they act and live their life out of greed and anger and hatred, they're probably going to experience a lot of suffering. And all that I wish for their happiness won't take that away. Likewise, I might wish for my own happiness. If I continue or keep acting unskillfully, it won't actually transform my life. And in that way, we're empowered in relationship to our own lives and actions. And we see that so too is everyone. And it's really important we understand we don't hold that as it's not suggesting a judgment or a criticism. It's simply this is how things work. And we can, and there's a whole teaching here that, that maybe I, I can't go into any more at this point. Yeah, I mean, it. it <laughs> but there, that, 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 maybe that's, that's giving a basic framework for it. Um, might pick it up a little more tomorrow, maybe. That, that there's the equanimity that actually things are as they are according to conditions rather than according to my wishes for myself or another. And actually that there's acceptance with that, that we see this is how it is. That's the acceptance of the first noble truth. And the second noble truth, really, that, um, that the suffering arises out of, of craving, which takes the form of both greed and aversion. And delusion, which really underpins the craving itself. There's one other piece in terms of handling that sense of guilt or overwhelm in the face of the suffering of the world or another. And it's very simply, they're not always easy, but very simply to make a response, to allow yourself to respond in whatever way you are able to do so. Even if it's just a thought and, and a movement in the heart of, may you be safe and well. May you be free of your suffering. It might be we can give something, we can do something, we can support something that actually makes a difference. Even if it's just a drop in the ocean, a drop in the ocean raises the level of the ocean around the whole world. Even though so small we might not notice it, it makes a difference. And to never doubt that anything you do will make a difference. And that is the other piece that for me is essential in being able to hold the suffering of the world is that we become part of the response to it. Even if we don't have and we're not given the capacity 
to bring about its complete and immediate resolution, which we're not given that capacity generally. But we can make a response in so many ways. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.